Welcome back, everyone. Today, we have cracking guests, really interesting guy, super interesting company. But we'll get to that in a second. Uh, firstly, thank you to Cathcart Associates um, for continually sponsoring the podcast, um, essentially letting me blether for an hour to another human being as part of my job. Um, so, yeah, without them, none of this is actually even possible. Um, so, big thanks. Um, and also, if you're hiring in technology or trying to find a job in technology, um, give them a call. Uh, so, today on the podcast, we have the co founder and CTO of a company called Goodloop, a chap called Daniel Winterstein. Um, so Goodloop are a tech for good company working in the world of advertising or advertising technology. Um, so they uh, give money to charity um, based on a user's interaction um, with an advert, um, working with some really massive brands. And it's not just one of those kind of token donations of uh, one pence or whatever. It's 50% of the revenue, which is pretty awesome. So I'm already scared I've butchered that a little bit. So I'm going to stop talking and let Daniel explain what they do. Um, so yeah, please welcome Daniel Winterstein to the podcast. So first of all, welcome to the podcast, Daniel. Thank you for agreeing to come on. Thank you, Liam. Pleasure to be here. For everyone that listens, we always start an education, which uh, we will do today. Um, so you've got quite a um, quite an interesting background in education, right? So you started doing mathematics um, at the University of Cambridge, is that right? That's right, yes. Uh, I went to Cambridge, I did mathematics. It's a wonderful subject. I really love mathematics. And I'm one of the lucky people who gets to do their, carry that subject with them, and it's still part of what I do. Um, yeah, that's what I was going to ask you, actually. So uh, from people I've spoken to in the past, the, a lot of kind of very successful people in the world of data, they, they do kind of go back to that background in mathematics and said that it really did set them up for, for success, essentially. So, I mean, although you maybe didn't know it back when you first chose that subject, um, like you said, it, it must be nice to still put a lot of that into practice, right? It is, yes. And as you say, it, it sets you up for working in artificial intelligence, um, or data science. I should say it's not essential. There's people doing some very good work in AI who don't have the maths background. So don't be put off if that's not your skill set. But yeah, it is no, also course. great. Mm. And once you've once you were at um, Cambridge, you decided to stay on and do kind of further education. So you did a master's in AI at Edinburgh Uni, and then continued that into a PhD in AI from Edinburgh Uni. And um, so once you'd finished the degree at Cambridge, was it always kind of in the back of your mind that you'd be quite keen to, to kind of progress with an education and do do more. Mm, at that point, I thought I was going to be an academic. That's what I wanted to do. Okay, cool. And I had. It was quite by chance I'd read a book on AI. Actually, it was on cognitive science. It was a pop science book. What's it called? How the Mind Works. And I can't remember who wrote it. Um, (laughs) I'll check it out out for when we post the podcast. Don't worry. (laughs) Uh, But I read that, and that sounded like, great, here's this subject where you use mathematics, but you also bring in psychology, philosophy, linguistics, pull it all together and then try and apply it to, well, make a, a, a smart system. So that uh, captured my imagination. I decided AI was what I wanted to do. And I asked around for where in Britain um, people were doing good AI research. And at the time, AI was much more of a niche subject than it is today. Now it's mainstream uh, back yeah. then, the advice I was given was go to Reading or go to Edinburgh. And I visited Reading and visited Edinburgh, and it was an easy choice. <laughs> I, I'm okay. uh, yeah, I, I didn't want to say that because I'm from Edinburgh. But um, yeah, I can imagine when a lot of people come to choose between universities. And I don't, I don't even know. I'm sure there's lots of other universities that might compete. But when you come to Edinburgh and see everything that it can offer, I'm sure... Um, I'm sure it does win a lot of uh, a lot of hearts that way. Um, I just checked, by the way, so I can get out of my head for the rest of today. Um, it was Stephen Pinker that wrote that book. Yes, yes, it was. Thanks. Um, that was going to annoy me, so I had to check. So yeah, you did. Uh, so you signed up for the masters first of all. Um, mm. Obviously, you said you wanted to be an academic um, at the time. So was it very much that you would do your masters, hopefully enjoy it as much as you thought you would, and then that would be the avenue to a PhD? Is that kind of how it worked? That was, uh, yeah, that's what I thought. That's exactly how it worked. Did my PhD, uh, stayed in Edinburgh. Uh, By that point, I'd fallen in love with Edinburgh. 
And in, by the end of the PhD, I'd fallen in love with a girl living in Edinburgh, and Edinburgh has now become home. And then after the PhD, well, I, did a, I stayed on in academia for a little bit as a researcher, but I was beginning to get itchy feet and think, right, I want to get out into the world and apply AI. Yeah, that's a story that we, um, we've heard quite a lot on the podcast, actually, is people that have went into that kind of PhD world and either thought maybe they would be an academic or maybe they wouldn't, but they wanted to finish what they'd kind of started and then see see kind of what comes from it at the end of it. So you mentioned kind of, yeah, you, you stuck on for a little bit. I mean, just going back quickly to the PhD, was that mm. a process that you enjoyed? Because we've kind of had... It's actually been more positive than negative, but most people have said they really enjoyed the whole process of doing a PhD and kind of the challenges that come with that. Some people have said they couldn't wait to get it over with and then run far away from academia. <laughs> were you in the? Were you kind of somewhere in between, or did you really enjoy the whole process? Oh, um, both of the above. I really enjoyed <laughs> the first year. I pretty much enjoyed the second year, and then in the third year, when the focus is on writing up and finishing. It, it's sort of a, yeah, I, I found that much less enjoyable as a lot of the ambitions you have get shelved into, well, I just need to get this report finished and cleared. Yeah, okay. I've spoken to a couple of people who have definitely recommended that you don't do this, but a few people that I know have got to the point, probably where you were at in, in third year, and they were thinking, this is just about getting this finished now. So they've actually taken full-time roles as data scientists or, or people working in data at the writing up stage where they were kind of almost finished and it ends up delaying it quite a lot because you don't realize how much time is needed for both. So it makes sense to just kind of, I think, maybe not to do it that way around. But I suppose it depends on, on your personality. A friend of mine, but, Alexi, uh, he did exactly that and he, he did eventually finish his PhD. He's now Dr. Alexi. Um, but, yep, it delayed... Yeah, well, along the way, he had two children and a career, and that does delay you. Yes, I bet. Um, and did you, um, you mentioned kind of getting kind of itchy feet by, by the end, and, and you did some kind of postdoc research as well. Did you just kind of think at that point that maybe the, the life of a kind of academic wouldn't give you everything that you wanted in terms of using the skills that you'd kind of amassed? That was it, exactly. I wanted to... Um, to get out into the world and see the skills having an impact and an effect. Yeah, um, no, that makes sense. Um, so you did have like a couple of works, a couple of years, sorry, working as a, a developer. I think one was with, uh, was that, it was with uni and IBM. So was that kind of one of those postdoc positions that you had? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, okay, cool. So when we moved on then from mm -hmm. that, um, essentially once you decided to get into industry, you just kind of decided to go alone then, right? So did you then just go straight into think tank mathematics? Um, no, no. Uh, the first industry job, I first went into computer games. Oh, okay, cool. So what did you do um, for kind of first role in industry? Uh, so I went to um, Real Time Worlds, which is a, or was rather, a Dundee-based company. And uh, let's see, they, they made a hit game called Crackdown and they followed it up with a game called APB which was uh, one of these uh, spectacular kind of commercial failures <laughs> okay <laughs> um, I should probably say that differently well, maybe we edit that out I don't know um, Real Time Worlds is a, was a fabulous company in many ways They're, they the core team were the people responsible for they first made the game Lemmings. Don't know if you remember Lemmings. It was. I think I've heard of it. So it's oh god, it goes back to like my first computers. I think it was the biggest selling computer game of its time. Wow! And then they made a whole load of games. Uh, eventually, they followed up Lemmings with a little number called Grand Theft Auto. Oh yeah, I've heard of that. So um, uh, that was uh, DMA, I think the company was called then. So and did they turn into Rockstar after that then? So Grand Theft Auto 3, which would become the first game to make a billion and uh, sort of was huge, just blew the gaming world away. They tragically ran out of cash on the last stretch of making GTA 3. 
Oh, no way. And so Rockstar, who are a... Uh, the parent company for Rockstar is an American company. They came in and they salvaged the project. They provided the funding to finish that game, but then they owned GTA. Yeah, okay. That was a good decision from them. Yep, yep, that worked out well for them. (laughs) Uh, They took their payout from GTA and they set up uh, Real-Time Worlds, which is the company I then joined. Nice. And what was your kind of role then with your kind of uh, mathematics background, your AI background, kind of how did you fit into uh, a kind of a gaming studio? I was on the team that made, um, they did procedural generation of cities. So both uh, Crackdown and APB are drive around and get into fights, uh, shoot things and blow things up kind of games. Key part of that is you have to have a city to drive around. Cities mean lots of buildings, and um, the way we approached that at Real Time Worlds is quite early on. They'd done a calculation of how much work it was going to take to realise the ambition they had for the sort of city they wanted to create, and realised that they were either going to need over a thousand artists, or they were going to need some smart software. And so the route they went down was to have a team of artists who would create a flagship bits of architecture and then have automated systems that would fill in most of the city that sounds uh that sounds really cool um that's actually one of the things i've always wished that on like a gta or something like that you could like pick the city that you were in rather than it telling you because i thought it would always be so cool to play like gta or like um a game like that and you could choose to be in Edinburgh, for example, and you would be driving around like George Street and and the likes. Uh, I thought that would be really cool. But then I think when you even just the way you explained it there, the amount of work that goes into getting these maps and uh, and uh, kind of virtual environments set up, I'm sure it's quite difficult. So having unlimited maps probably isn't the most uh, uh, economical idea. <laughs> I don't. I don't know. I think that's a great idea for a game. I'd love to play that. And I think looking at the the data that's now available. And one of the things that's really changed in the AI world is the amount of data sets which have come online and are now accessible for projects. There's now a lot of mapping data and indeed 3D building model data. There's also, um, these days, if you wanted to create a 3D model of Holyrood Parliament or the castle, well, probably one already exists and you can just get it. And if it didn't, you can create a, a kind of low fidelity model from photographs using AI techniques to infer the 3D structure from 2D photos. So creating, creating those kind of uh, assets has become a lot cheaper and there's also a lot more available from people who have scanned our cities and put them online. So I think that would be feasible and I'd love to play that game. Please some people it. and make it. Yeah, so let's talk about it after. Maybe we've came up with a, a billion-dollar idea. I want to maybe not, because I quite small. Maybe like even just a million would be fine. <laughs> How was it for you then working in industry? So did you notice a big difference from that world of kind of academia, postdoc, uh, and kind of a lot of people do mention the the shift that they feel when they go into industry, where there's a lot of pressure on like project deadlines, budgets, reporting to someone else. Like it, it does feel a little bit different. Was that something you kind of um, transitioned into quite easily, and did you enjoy that? It is, as you say, very different, but I transitioned into it quite happily. And I enjoy having project deadlines and clear goals. I actually enjoy having a boss, but I haven't had a boss for a long time. (laughs) Um, I suppose it depends who your boss is. You've always had good experiences. (laughs) I think, uh, so after that, I think think I'm right saying you you did um, set up Think Tank mathematics so from what i could tell about that company from the description you had on linkedin um it looks like you were doing a kind of ai consultancy long before they were like a cool thing to do right exactly we actually didn't use the word ai when we were talking to people because people thought that ai was just science fiction at that point (laughs) i think people still think that (laughs) well fair enough except that (laughs) <laughs> then you download the app on your phone and it's there. It feels like science fiction, some of this. 
Yeah, that's true. And so how did you describe it back then? What was the way of explaining it? We'd say we were mathematicians for hire, and people wouldn't know what that meant. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and the first thing they would say is, what does that mean? And why would anyone want to hire a mathematician? And so you talk about, okay, well, what does a mathematician do? Well, a, a mathematician for hire do? Well, let's talk about what your business does and the data in your business. And every business is collecting data. Every business these days is to some extent a data business. Yeah. And there's always uh, business processes which touch on that data, use that data. And that's where taking a mathematical approach, you can look at, okay, how can we optimize this? How can we maybe deliver a new uh, product or service powered by this data that you've collected. What we would now call uh, either an AI project or a data science project, but back then data science hadn't really become a term and AI was seen as too much in the science fiction space. Would you um, like no, some example projects? Would that be a good way to explain it? Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, what you just said there is, makes a lot of sense. Um, and I like the approach to it. And to be honest, some of the approach you've just said there is probably equally applicable today for, for data Ooh. consultancies. But yeah, I mean, an example project would be great. And one of the other questions that you can maybe follow on from that was, was there always a plan to, to do something by yourself? Did you think that would work? Uh, and was it kind of just a, a bit of an entrepreneurial spirit? Or, or did you spot an opportunity at the time to, to use your skills and, uh, and just kind of go for it? Sort of. It was more that I saw that wanted to do this and couldn't find a company that would employ me to do it. So if I wanted to do it, I was going to have to take the entrepreneurial route. And so we went out and started talking to people, thinking we believe that there is a gap here, that this is uh, valuable skills. We can take these out and apply these in industry. Uh, and yeah, as we engage with the market, that confirmed that, yeah, there's, there was, and indeed there still is, a lot of potential for taking data science and AI and mathematics skills and using them in all sorts of industries. Yeah, um, no, 100%, definitely agree with that. Um, and in terms of kind of example projects, then, I mean, what was the kind of thing that you got up to? Uh, it varied a lot. And that was one of the joys of it. So on the one hand, we did the kind of things you might think of, like we did um, projects involving banking data and money data. But then there was, um, there was a project like, there was a chap who phoned me up one day and uh, said to me, so you make mathematical models. Can you make a mathematical model about cows? <laughs> and his question was, how do you know when a cow is in the mood for sex? <laughs> did you think it was a prank call at the time or did you instantly just want to start working out uh, my first reaction was that I thought this was a prank call but <laughs> I stayed on the line and I'm very glad I did because it was a real project and a very interesting one I bet so this, uh, this research project was they had created a Fitbit for cows a collar that went around the cow's neck and records the cow's motion and the idea for this was that it could do a couple of things automatically for the farmer to help them manage their herd so it'd be able to pick up when the cow is sick or injured and can call out the vet and it would also be able to pick up the cow's fertility cycle that's what they figured they could spot and if you can spot that well if you're running a dairy herd this is really important because a i, I learned I learned so much being a consultant about such a range of industries, including the dairy industry. So I can now, I, I can talk until the cows come home on this one. <laughs> at some point. But yeah, a dairy cow, uh, she has to uh, become a mother. Otherwise, she's not going to produce any milk. And the, yeah. way the, uh, the way the cow industry works, the cattle industry, it's, it's very close to the bone on the margins. And if... Um, a cow only gets a few chances to become pregnant or they give up on her as this cow might not be fertile and I'm not going to spend any more money trying, at which point that dairy cow uh, goes off to become dog food 
and this is a bad outcome for both cow and farmer. So that was the first goal of the Fitbits was let's pick up the cycle of the cows, improve the success rate, and that's good for the cows, that's good for the farms. That's so, that's so interesting, and I think that's why I like one of the main reasons I actually liked doing this podcast is chatting to people about like projects like that because you just don't you don't really hear about it otherwise. Um, do you think? And I might be wrong here. Um, I, I, this is off the top of my head, rather than with any sort of uh, research beforehand. But um, do you think that data can still play quite a big role uh, in the kind of farming and agricultural world? Because I mean, I feel like it's one of the industries that's maybe not a hundred percent bought into it yet. Hmm. Um, so I should caveat this by saying I haven't done much work in that world and the state of the art is moving quite rapidly. Yeah. But yes, absolutely. We're going to see um, more and more use of data automation coming into agriculture and how we make food. And in lots of ways, like um, processing lines that use image recognition to automate the processing. No, I think that makes sense. And, and again, it wasn't really from anything that I've, I've noticed. It just when I do see an agricultural project around the, the kind of world of data, I actually always make sure I read through it because I always think I don't see that many of these. Um, so, yeah, that was just off the top of my head. And so you ran that for a while. Uh, and after that, you ended up doing, I think, various different things, right? So you did some more work back at Edinburgh Uni and Dundee Uni and kind of more consulting work was that kind of all through the business of think tank mathematics or did you end up doing quite a lot of independent work think tank mathematics didn't last too long Wintwell Associates followed it on a very similar model of AI data science consultancy but with an eye on can we are these projects we're doing are they actually products um, the, the uh, working with Dundee and Edinburgh, doing a project with Dundee University at the moment. That is that is always enjoyable, and that is thanks to some of the good people I know from my time as a PhD student. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. And I suppose that kind of roughly takes us up to. Uh, the tail end of 2016 as a bit of a whistle-stop tour through your career. But I suppose uh, one of the, the main reasons we're, we're chatting today is going to be around what you're doing now for a company called Goodloop. So I knew a little bit about you guys before asking you to come on, but I, I did some more kind of reading into it yesterday. And you guys probably have one of my favorite stories of like how two founders came together and like came to be as a business. So I don't want to ruin it for everyone. I'll let you tell it. But that was in kind of the tail end of 2016, right? That's right. Uh, well, um, it starts earlier in 2016. It starts in summer of 2016. It was, uh, we got, me and uh, my co-founder, Amy, we got together via the entrepreneurial equivalent of online dating. <laughs> it is the modern way to do things. So yeah, why don't you tell us how uh, mm. how that actually fleshed out then? Because as I said, it's one of my favourite stories that I've seen uh, of two, two people coming together to start a business. Oh, thank you. With pleasure. Um, we both came to the same place from opposite directions. On my side, I was working in technology, making software. And one of the things we made was a white label um, ad serving system that worked with people's data around doing customized ad delivery. And that got us involved in advertising technology. And that quickly got us frustrated with advertising technology. <laughs> From a sort of as a, a data science person, it's really exciting the, the data that's out there, the potential to work with it. And as a person, it's quite upsetting the uh, the lack of care, the lack of responsibility with which many companies in the industry treat people's data and treat people. So we came into the industry uh, quite naively, um, building tools and thinking they would be used nicely and learning, well, no, this is actually how it works, and reached a kind of a point where I was saying, I'm not sure whether I want to continue working in advertising on these projects, I'm going to quit. But wait, what if, what if we 
did this started with the goal of doing advertising in a positive way. What if we did it better? How would that look? And being an entrepreneur, I looked at uh, the market and went, yes, this market is it's full of um, bad behavior, frustrated users. There's an opportunity there. There's a gap for an ad company, which is starting from the premise of let's do this ethically, let's do this well. At the same time, Amy Williams was working in, um, she was working in Ogilvy, they're a big agency, they do a lot of work around uh, both creatives and campaigns. And she was getting frustrated from the point of view of she'd be working with brands and the brands would produce very high quality, polished, beautiful adverts. If you look at modern ad making, a lot of the adverts are miniature works of uh, works of art, I, which sounds pretentious, but these are really high quality bits of filmmaking. Yeah, telling a little story in you know, thirty seconds, and then you take all that hard work and creativity, and you shove it in front of someone who's just wants to browse the internet and is really annoyed that this thing has got in their way. (laughs) And that got us thinking there has to be a better approach to advertising. Advertising, the whole point of advertising is that brands want to connect with customers. And normally it's not a good way to connect with someone to sort of burst into the middle of what they're doing and just start shouting at them. This is not the... (laughs) You wouldn't do it at a party... Why do companies do it online? So that led her to take some time out from Ogilvy and start thinking about, okay, what would advertising look like if we approached it differently? If we set out from advertising as something that people want. That led her to posting an ad online to say, hey, I've got this idea for an ad company built around ads that raise money for charity. Is there anyone technical um, who would like to work with me on this? And if you talk to Amy, she'll say uh, she'll tell you that. Well, if you post something online, then she got a lot of weirdos answering. <laughs> but one of those weirdos happened to have experience in building ad tech and bring a software development company with him. So we started talking in 2016. Found that our ideas on what we wanted to build really fit together perfectly. And then late 2016, we found a good loop. Yeah, like I said, I love that story. I mean, I've seen the adverts before. So um, when I saw it on the website yesterday, I remember seeing things for like founders or a CTO or mm. whatever it might be um, on the on these kind of websites, like the startup for jobs and angel list and stuff like that. And I always see at the bottom where it just says like... Um, like no salary, like we're basically just working it out. And I always think like that's really ballsy to just like jump into something like that. Um, but I suppose, like you said, you both had a very similar mission in mind, just without knowing it. Hmm. So it just was one of those where it was just kind of married up very, very well. So I suppose then going on to what you and the team do then so you just said what the mission would be um so so when you first started and and even i suppose now uh, kind of three and a half years or so later is the mission very much what it was when you started it is yes indeed apart from up until this current year and uh the covid19 crisis the plan has pretty much gone like clockwork excellent You may hear a note of surprise in my voice, which is in many years (laughs) in industry and working on lots of projects, it's rare to see that the plan you start with is still looking back several years later. You go, yep, that's the plan we followed. Yeah. And as was, how does, so how does Good Lube work then? So you work with some pretty big brands and part of the uh, profit from adverts goes to charity, right? So how does it work from, I suppose the whole kind of life cycle of it. So like when you speak to those brands, to the adverts themselves, to the kind of consumer watching it, um, how how does it all work? Okay. um, Can I answer that from a couple of different directions? Please. So we start with the user, the person watching the ad. And 
we're an advertising company. Uh, we're an advertising company founded on the understanding that people mostly don't want to watch ads. <laughs> so there's the approach we take is, well, we are going to give you a choice. Our ads are always optional. They're either opt-in or you can skip them from the very first instant. And we give you a reason. And the reason is, pick a charity. If you watch 15 seconds of this advert, then the brand is going to make a donation to that charity you picked. You get to do a little bit of good for, with your time. The advert gets watched. Everyone is happy. Or if you don't like this offer, just skip the ad. Perhaps unsurprisingly, giving people choice and a positive reason leads to them feeling much better about the advert. And although many people will skip the ad, you actually get a lot more engagement out the end of it. So that's, that then leads to why does it work for the advertiser? Well, it works because with, rather than them shoving their message out onto the internet and most of the time it's ignored, if not worse, it annoys people, we're putting their advert um, and creating this positive moment where the person watching it does good, feels good, pays attention. One of the things about the money we give is that it's, it's not a token donation. It is 50% of the advertiser's spend. So for every pound that the advertiser is spending on media, 50p is going to go to charity. That's awesome. Most of the rest of the money will go to the, uh, the publisher to pay for the space where the advert goes. Yeah. And then Goodloop makes a margin. It, it, it is awesome. I, I love what the company does, the, um, the good that we fund. At the end of every deal we do, there's this sort of um, double satisfaction that, well, as, uh, as an entrepreneur, it's great. We've done a deal. That's brilliant for the business. And then there's, and half that money is going to go to these charities. That's fantastic. But I should say, um, this gives the impression, impression that I must be a lovely person. <laughs> giving away all this money how nice we must be and um, I should correct that uh, we are running a biz we are not running a charity we are running a business and Goodloop is making money out of this our, our goal is if we make advertising better then we can generate enough extra value by doing it well that we can fund this donation to charity and we can deliver the best value to the advertiser and we will still have a, a margin for the company. I suppose that, yes, it's, I mean, it's very uh, honest of you to put it in that phrasing, but I suppose without Goodloop, the charity wouldn't be getting any of this money, so it's still incredibly positive. Um, my question is perhaps an incredibly dumb question. Why would the advertisers sign up for this? Is there hope that if someone watches enough of their adverts, they will then convert to sales? So advertisers sign up for it because it works for them. We get advertising is a very metrics and measurement driven industry. Mm -hmm. And when we run an advert, the advertiser, they'll be bought into the purpose. They will really like that this is going to fund good causes, but it also has to work for them as a business. So if it doesn't help them get their message out and sell product, then they're not going to run ads. Um, so what we have to show to our, our advertisers is that this is both doing good and it's good business. Yeah. And we will get measured on, right, what was the cost uh, for every person who watched a video? Did the people stick around and watch the whole video or did they just leave after, you know, they hit their 15 seconds, made their donation, did they then leave or did they stay and watch the rest of the video? And then the follow-on, we'll do surveys after, the ad, after an ad campaign, if it's large enough, we'll do a survey of the people who saw the ad and then people who saw the ad without us and people who didn't see the ad and measure what effect did that have on people's knowledge of the brand and their thinking about it. And what we need to show is that pound for pound, going down the good loop route of funding charity, treating users with respect, that that is going to deliver more customers for your company in the end. Yeah, no, that makes sense. 
No, I really like it, and uh, I think it's. I mean, it's such a, it's such a cool idea. Given that we are on a slightly data focused podcast, I mean, it's not really. Uh, where um, where does AI and uh, and data kind of come into, especially given your experience? Like, what's the focus if you were to be kind of looking at data science um, from Good Loop's perspective? Hmm. Well, um, it turns out that running a company where you give half of your incoming revenue away to charity and making it profitable is quite hard. Yes. Uh, we're in a very competitive mar- market and giving half the money away is not easy. So when we, when we were doing our first experiments and finding out what kind of what the performance parameters were, we had a, a choice of we can either dilute the mission and say, well, we won't give half the money to charity. Maybe we'll give a quarter. Maybe we'll give 10%. And we felt, well, where does that stop? We don't want to be one of these companies that says they're doing charity work, but it's just a token effort. Yeah. So we took the other approach, which was to say, okay, we believe we can make this work. This is now an optimization problem. We've got, we've got a fairly hard target to hit. But how can we deliver these ads so that they are delivering, basically, they've got to be twice as good as not using us in order to fund that donation. And that led us into running, uh, running experiments on design, running, running experiments on how we buy media. And um, I don't know how much you know about the advertising, the mechanics of the advertising industry. And uh, certainly for the audience, let me give a very brief overview of how it works. Which yeah, is, if you imagine stock market trading, where people are buying and selling shares, and if you picture like a, like a, an old school 80s stock market with lots of people shouting at each other, <laughs> something very similar is going on in advertising. And uh, just like in the stock market, it's all done electronically and it's done in fractions of a second. So when you open up a, an online newspaper and you're reading an article, and for the user this feels like a very calm experience, behind the scenes there's going to be a little bidding auction that gets run in which a hundred companies will get involved. That auction will take place in a fraction of a second and that will decide what advert then gets shown to you. And a key question for any advertising company is, how are they going to act in those auctions? What kind of media do you want to buy? How much are you going to pay for it? And this is where we get into data questions. I never really thought about that before, about like how they push the personalized ads to different people and like how quick they would have to decide that or, or when, it, when it's decided, maybe not even how quick, like, like when do they decide that that's going to be the ad that you see next? So thanks for that insight. Um, that's really cool. And I suppose on a slightly different note, the the Good Loop team, obviously there was um, the two founders right at the start, but it's actually quite a, a large team now. I think mostly based in Edinburgh, correct me if I'm wrong. And I'm sure from it's about your... 50-50. London, Edinburgh, okay. Is it, is it like technical in Edinburgh and kind of commercial in London? Is that the kind of split or does it not, does it not matter for you guys? Is it just whoever's best for whichever job? Um, no, it is. Uh, you hit the nail on the head. I just assumed because obviously you're the CTO, so I thought the technical team might be with you in Edinburgh. Uh, yeah, so the team's pretty decent size, and I'm sure you've learned not just from Goodloop, but from where you worked before and, and building companies. And what do you think is kind of the key, maybe even just a tip around building kind of high performing, good technical teams, just from what you've kind of experienced? Okay, um, I'm not sure there is one tip. It starts with working with good people, and I think I'm very fortunate in the team that I work with. You always want to have a small team of people who, everyone in the team should be better than you in some way. I like that. I've never heard anyone say that, but I like that. And then I guess um, it also helps to have, it certainly helped us to have a drive for what we're doing. And uh, pre-Good Loop, that drive was around joy in making good software. Uh, and now it's been doubled up by also the impact that what we do has. Yeah. Um, so that's a uh, that's about like if you take 
you can take someone who's the same smart person and you stick them in the difference between someone who's really motivated to do, do their best and deliver versus that same person and they're going in, they're doing the hours, but their heart and soul isn't there. That's a night and day difference. Uh, so I think we're, we're very fortunate as a company in being able to have that purpose naturally, have interesting technical problems to work on as well, so the work is interesting. Yeah. Also, the uh, the Edinburgh base has been quite good for, there's a lot of technical people around, it's a good ecosystem for finding people. Yeah. Does it make it easier for you, do you think, than maybe some other companies? Because obviously everyone says they want to hire like passionate, motivated people. It's kind of like almost like a job spec tick box these days. But when you're working for, I'm trying to think of it, I don't want to think of a real example, just like I made up one. But if you're working for like, if you're a data scientist for a concrete manufacturer who are trying to optimize logistics, like nobody's going to be like hugely passionate about that. They might be passionate about the work behind the scenes, but they don't have that added kind of extra motivation. Whereas when you're hiring people, it'll be quite obvious if they've got that because of what you guys do. Is that that fair? Yeah, I think um, what we do attracts people who care about what we do. Yeah. And then our our hiring process is is quite sort of uh, tough on the technical side. And so we end up with people who who care and have the technical skills. Yeah, which is a great mix. Um, I I, I would enjoy working in a concrete uh, manufacturer optimizing that. (laughs) <laughs> it was the most random thing I could think of and that's all I came up with I once worked and, uh, it was a short project but for a, a pillow manufacturer and it was interesting work no I bet no I, I, I like the, I like the answers you gave there about the team I think that makes a lot of sense there's so many other questions that I still need to ask we've, I've only got a few left one of the things I meant to ask about um, with Goodloop from a consumer's point of view do they choose the charity or do the company choose like their chosen charity it's um, the company picks a shortlist and then the user picks from that shortlist. Nice. Cool. Yeah. Um, and we do that because we did initially experiment with the user picks the charity. But we've got to have our ad unit has to be really easy to use, quick to use. Because mm-hmm. it, it pops up. It's a 30 seconds slot that it's holding, really. And you can't fit a search form into that. Yeah, no, that makes so sense. It's got to be a shortlist. That shortlist wants to be charities which make sense with the advert yeah so if it's like a food ad we'll probably do something around food banks or uh farming yeah that makes sense and you kind of touched on it earlier that the first couple of years or or kind of almost almost three years of the business i've went like clockwork and then three or four months ago we were obviously hit by by covid um how how has it been for you guys to transition to working from home and managing the team, but also just kind of working as a business? Uh, has it been okay? It has. It's certainly been um, uh, interesting times. Yeah. So the advertising business was hit by COVID, as have been so many other businesses and um, people's ways of life. In our industry, the first thing that happened is a lot of campaigns got cancelled. If you had an advert that was encouraging people to... Uh, go out and go shopping or when uh, coronavirus uh, started becoming a problem in the UK we were about to run a uh, a cinema uh, an ad for a movie that was about to open at the cinema and obviously then the yeah. cinemas get closed but also a lot of ads got shelved for uh, just like if you had ads that showed as so many ads do people going out meeting their friends and they're hugging and and you can't really run that at the moment. Yeah, I never thought about that. Um, so the instant effect was that uh, we saw, if you look at our, our, our revenue, it, it does a real roller coaster. We saw a lot of our campaigns cancelled as a lot of the advertisers had to rethink what they were doing and adjust it. Yeah. But then we saw, we're seeing a change in how people think about business with a bit of a shift towards people expecting more from businesses, that businesses should contribute to society, which is something I firmly believe. And that has, um, uh, for Goodloop, that's resulted in new companies coming to us who are saying, right, okay, 
we, we hadn't really considered purpose before as part of what we do, but we're now thinking actually purpose is part of what we do. It's, it's in, there's much more of this expectation that should be part of what every business does. And so that's generated uh, people coming to us and wanting to work with us. That's amazing. That's uh, no, I, I, it makes sense when you when you put it like that. And I think a lot of people have said that the way that they're going to interact with brands and and kind of companies moving forward is kind of look back and see how they reacted during things like COVID. So um, it does make sense if that's coming higher on the agenda now. And, and obviously, if you guys can help, then even better. So that's great to hear. Um, and I suppose then moving forward and now that it looks like there's going to be it looks like there's been some more positive strides uh, in the kind of containment of of coronavirus um, in the UK what what is the kind of rest of the year and uh, and beyond what what does that look like for Goodloop is there plans in place to uh, expand geographically or diversify or anything like that we're still seeing how the market's going to settle down it's really good that Britain's um seeing the numbers begin to drop off and i think we've had a few days now without any deaths in scotland yeah i think we've had two in a row and i've not heard anything right. today so three three so, in a row would be great fingers crossed. um that's great there's also going to be a recession coming hmm. so we're still waiting to see the commercial fallout uh so to some extent our plans are cautious around we're not sure what quite what the market's doing yeah but what we're looking at is, so far we've been operating mostly in the UK with a bit of activity internationally. We want to do more international work. We're looking at uh, the US market, where we're now working with our last funding round, a couple of US advertising, uh, VC firms linked to US advertising came on board, and we're looking at working with them around bringing Good Loop to the United States which is nice. the largest global ad market. Yeah. And we're also looking at doing more in Europe, doing more internationally. Fantastic. Um, yeah, that's not even a topic we managed to touch on in this hour um, around kind of VC funding and stuff, but that's fine. Um, we, we, we can go back to another day. The last two points I've got, one is more directly towards you. Um, so I think it was last year you got Scottish Director of the Year um, for, for startups, I think. Is that right? Yes. Which is pretty awesome. So congratulations. Um, how did Thank how did that come about? <laughs> I, I think I owe it to Goodloop. To Goodloop being a uh, a great idea, which is working well, and to a large extent, I owe it to my fellow director, uh, co-founder, and CEO Amy Williams, who is an absolutely fabulous person and smashing it in what she does. But she's not based in Scotland. So, <laughs> yes, it couldn't be Scottish Director of the Year. No, I, I like that. Um, actually, just I know we're we're kind of slowly running out of time, quickly running out of time. Um, but was it weird for you to set up a business with someone that you didn't actually know? You just had a kind of common goal. Was was that something in the back of your head that was like a, a risk that's paid off hugely, or once you met and and got chatting, you instantly knew that it was just something that would work? There was definitely a period where where it felt risky and very uncertain. Like, so, you know, we first we were talking on email. It was very much like online dating. We were talking on email and then we we're talking on the phone. And uh, then we arranged to meet. And there's sort of the worry of what if they turn out to be a nutter? <laughs> it, was, it became sort of increasingly clear that we had uh, the same uh, goals for what Good Loop should be and what it should achieve. And that there was this great potential to do something. And yeah, over the course of uh, so 2016 and then uh, 2017 and onwards, um, that has been a really good working relationship. I said there, awesome. there were certainly points in the early time where I was I was nervous about it, but uh, there hasn't been a point that I have regretted any of it. It's really worked. I think that's, uh, that's a great story. It's fantastic. Um, and then just lastly, to finish off, um, which is sometimes something I forget, where can people kind of find Goodloop, any kind of content you guys put out, or, or if you use kind of your LinkedIn or something like that, where, where's the best place to kind of engage with Goodloop? Okay, so if you want to see our adverts in the wild, that's uh, random. It comes down to that bidding process, the auctions that I talked about earlier. We will yeah. be in those auctions and... Whether you see one of our ads will depend on uh, what campaigns we're running at the moment, 
whether they fit with what you're reading, I, and it can vary by the time of day, the device, all those will be factors that are going into whether we show you an advert or not. So you can't go out and find the campaigns. On the other hand, you can come to, if you want to see what we do, come to goodloop.com. You can see demos there. You can also sign up as a Goodloop user. What we will ask, what we ask people then is, can we keep um, uh, cookies to follow their profile and keep a track the donations you're making, track the ads that you watch? And uh, the reason we do that is that then lets us both uh, report to you about the impact that you're having by watching these adverts, but it also lets us um, buy better and hence raise more money for charity. Brilliant. If we, if, you know, if we know that you're someone who likes Goodloop ads, we're more likely to put in a bid to show you one. No, that's awesome. And when we post this, I'll make sure everything's linked up to those pages as well um, so people can, can sign up or, or even just explore it. Um, and if they want to sign up, then fantastic. All right. Well, that was a fascinating discussion. I've actually got so many other questions and uh, I'm sure we'll get to them another day. But thank you very much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Um, and it'll be great to see kind of what a good look can do for, for the rest of the year. And obviously once the kind of recovery comes in as well and kind of where where you guys can take the technology because I think it is really really cool thank you very much Liam so that was loads of fun and one of those where I just had questions popping up in my mind all over the place that I wanted to get to and missed out loads of stuff that I'd already asked them I already kind of had prepared so um, it was a little bit all over the place for me but uh, I thought Daniel was super interesting um, his kind of journey how Daniel and Amy met as co-founders uh, is such a cool story um, and what Good Loop do as well I'm really really impressed um, and it's great to see a company in Edinburgh or kind of half in Edinburgh doing such interesting and uh, kind of impactful work as well um, so go check them out let me know what you think uh, any questions any comments would be fantastic um, thank you for listening um, thanks to Cathcart for sponsoring and I'll see you again soon <laughs>